Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. As you know, this show is an embarrassingly enthusiastic member of the Agora Podcasting Network. Amongst the people who find my enthusiasm somewhat off-putting is Heather Tesco, host of the Renaissance English History Podcast. In her show, Heather tells stories of Tudor England, from the music to the culture, and the people whose stories you might not have heard before. This background has led Heather to found the Tudor Radio Network, which is the world's first online station devoted to transporting you, yes you, to the 16th century, no matter where you're at right now. It's available online, and it features original programming with your favorite Tudor podcasts. And that includes music. No matter where you are or what time it is, you can switch it on and be guaranteed to hear something either from or about 16th century England. So check out thetudorradionetwork.com for more info. And for more information about all of the Agora Podcast Network shows, you can go to the agorapodcastnetwork.com. Speaking of the Agora Podcasting Network, I was talking to my dad the other day, and I realized I might not have pushed the Agora Podcast Network podcast feed hard enough. Did you guys know we have a collective podcast feed? We do a ton of fun one-off shows and crossovers, and each October we do a whole bunch of Halloween-themed shows, which I'm not really into horror that much, but I have fun with what I do, and some of the other ones that people do are fun. They're, they're all great. Anyway, look up the Agora Podcast Network podcast on your podcatcher of choice. It is really fun. This month we have a number of glorious patrons to shower with honor and praise. First up, his fame shall go far and wide as John the Bold. Not to be confused with St. John the Horribly Sainted. Really, they're two different guys. Come on, John is just a common name. Just stop getting them confused. It's really upsetting to John the Bold. The guy we're talking about. Come on. Up next, we have Richard, who shall be known from this day forth as Sir Richard, Deputy Organizer of the 2014 Family Reunion. Now, those of you who are members of the Facebook group will know that over the last two months, I've had a lot of trouble securing sources. Uh, and the next three individuals really helped me out with uh, nailing down some sources that were, were necessary. So, the first has previously been a, uh, a donor, and that is Susan the Stocking Forger, an archmatron of the Whiskey Swillers. Well, Susan shall have additional titles added to her prestigious name, and shall now be known as Susan the Stocking Forger, Archmatron of the Whiskey Swillers, and Admiral of Sea and War. Up next, we have listener Ryan, who shall be known henceforward as Sir Ryan Potato Forger, Commodore of the Yearly Garlic Fleet. And finally, we have Margaret, who shall be known henceforward as Lady Margaret, the Saintly, Picaroon of the Internets. 
Thank you to John, Richard, Susan, Ryan, and Margaret for your invaluable service to the realm in our time of need. If you wish to join their serried ranks, you can head over to the website, Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com, and head on over to the store page. However, even if you don't wish to join their serried ranks as donors or patrons, maybe you should head over there anyway. Turns out we have an actual store now where you can buy, of course, green trebuchet t-shirts. We're going to be adding more items uh, later on as we add them in, but for now it would be amazing if uh, you guys went and bought some. Uh, That would be really cool. So you can now do that online using a credit card. You don't have to, like, have me mail things to you. So I still have, like, 10 t-shirts from the conference. But, you know, I'll get rid of them somehow. And, you know, for now, uh, it's probably much easier for everybody if you head on over to the website and buy a t-shirt off the uh, the store page. Thanks very much for that. If you are unable to contribute monetarily, then, of course, give us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google play podcasts whatever your uh, podcatcher of choice happens to be it's all appreciated and then of course those of you who just listen that's also amazing uh, and thank you very much to everybody let's get this episode started quote from a female viking warrior confirmed by genomics printed in the american journal of physical anthropology as read by sarah tangsalfala of the excellently well-researched american history podcast objectives The objective of this study has been to confirm the sex and the affinity of an individual buried in a well-furnished warrior grave, BJ581, in the Viking Age town of Birka, Sweden. Previously, based on the material and the historical records, the male sex has been associated with the gender of the warrior, and such was the case with BJ581. An earlier osteological classification of the individual as female was considered controversial in a historical and archaeological context. A genomic confirmation of the biological sex of the individual was considered necessary to solve the issue. Materials and Methods Genome-wide sequence data was generated in order to confirm the biological sex to support skeletal integrity and to investigate the genetic relationship of the individual to ancient individuals as well as modern-day groups. Additionally, a strontium isotope analysis was conducted to highlight the mobility of the individual. Results The genomic results revealed the lack of a Y chromosome, and thus a female biological sex, and the mitochondrial DNA analyses support a single individual origin of sampled elements. The genetic affinity is close to present-day North Europeans and within Sweden to the southern and south-central region. Nevertheless, the strontium values are not conclusive as to whether she was of local or non-local origin. Discussion. The identification of a female Viking warrior provides a unique insight into the Viking society, social constructions, and exceptions to the norm in the Viking time period. The results call for caution against generalizations regarding social orders in past societies. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings! 
my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. This is episode 49, Topics in Modern Historical Research <sighs> Methodologies. Before last episode's presentation of extracurricular materials, we had been discussing the lifestyles of the poor and rural. We discussed the evolution of the manor system, how it made up feudalism, and how its expression differed across Europe. I'd planned to use this episode to begin discussing cities and how your urban commoners lived, but then I decided that before I could discuss urbanism, I had to discuss the economic forces that underpinned the revival of urbanization. I will elaborate more on the whys in later episodes, but, you know, that's kind of not important because it turns out that uh, economic history is huge. It's a huge topic, and there was just no way, even with the month I took off, to cram through enough material to produce an episode of the quality that you and I have come to expect. Of course, the difficulty I had getting materials didn't help, and just to add to the hilarity of this entire situation, my wife's going to be getting major back surgery at the end of the month. So, I'm not getting that episode done that I had planned. But this is actually probably going to turn out for the best. The stuff I'm going to be talking about today has been a huge and fascinating tangent in my study of the medieval economy. One that I've sort of had inklings of in, in previous uh, research efforts, but one that really came to the fore in terms of economic history. That said, I was having trouble kind of fitting it into the episode script. So instead of turning out a substandard episode or delaying by yet another month only to drop a huge episode with a mishmash of material, today we're going to have a one-off episode about new historical research technologies and methodologies. And then next month, after I've finished up my research and after my wife has convalesced, we will talk about the economy. Sound good? Excellent. Now, Historical research methodologies may not sound like the most gripping of topics, but it has actually been key to a sort of low-grade revolution in the professional historical discipline in the last few decades. I've talked about some of the reasons for this already in the show, notably with last year's now legendary discussion of Mark Bloch and the beginnings of the Structuralist School. As I discussed back then, the structuralists emphasized the use of economic data and government records in a creative way to reinterpret and critique more traditional narrative historical documents and sketch out high-level historical narratives about the long-term changes in society, particularly in the Middle Ages. To Bloch and other structuralists, this was a vital way to tell historical stories, as it allowed the historian to get away from the great man view of history and to tell the story of how common people would have experienced events. This structuralist technique came under attack in the 60s and 70s, initially by feminists, but soon thereafter by those seeking history that talked about ethnic, religious, and sexual minorities. The end result has been, in some ways, a balkanization of history into a plethora of post-structuralist schools, which, confusingly enough, does include a number of neo-structuralists, especially in Europe. From the 70s to the mid-90s, these groups hissed and snarled at each other from the pages of academic journals as they settled into increasingly specialized subdisciplines of history that defied synthesis due to ideological disagreements that continued in the absence of new evidence. In the background of this narrative, a number of changes were underway in a number of areas seemingly disconnected from each other and from often history in general. And yet, these all sort of come together the first change worth discussing is the discovery of the point-contact transistor in 1947 at Bell Labs, New Jersey. 
The point contact transistor led to a revolution in electronics manufacture that allowed the development of computing machines of increasing sophistication and power. By the 1970s, when my father was majoring in computer science, computers were still the size of rooms and had to be programmed using punch cards, and often did not have visual displays of any kind. The printers that produced the computational outputs of these behemoths were actually glorified electric typewriters, meaning any picture often had to be printed using a creative application of symbols to texture and image. By the early 1990s, when my dad was a computer scientist working at Bell Labs himself, personal computers were then generally familiar and of increasing importance. For most academics, they were a great way to store information, and they made it much easier to write up papers for publication. My mother, a PhD candidate in the study of literature at the time, used her computer solely for word processing. While clearly a welcome alternative to using a typewriter with all its carbon paper and whiteout, the impact of the computer on my mother's academic career was hardly revolutionary. Surely, historians were no different, using them for word processing and not revolutions. Well, we'll see. For now, let's move on to the next area of our story. Archaeology has had a troubled past. While most areas of inquiry have a ultimately embarrassing adolescence, archaeology's heroic period is one that continues to haunt not only the discipline of archaeology, but Western civilization as a whole. While the Indiana Jones-style archaeologists of the 19th century captured the public's imagination with their grand discoveries in Egypt and the Middle East, the vast majority of such people were, at best, unthinking about the long-term consequences of their actions, and, at worst, criminally destructive of the cultural history of the countries whose treasures they were looting. Practices by people such as Heinrich Schliemann, who claimed to discover Troy after using dynamite to excavate a hill full of irreplaceable artifacts, led to conflicts between archaeologists and historians that have only healed in the last few decades. The unfortunate result of this was that, rather than seeing archaeologists as valuable partners providing raw data for historians to recontextualize, historians often viewed archaeologists as irresponsible cowboys, whose results should be considered at arm's length, if at all. Archaeology has matured over the last two centuries, and in the last 60 years has really taken its place as a vital and trustworthy part of the process of historical inquiry. That is not to say that some of the old issues do not persist. While archaeologists no longer use dynamite to find gold trinkets, museums and research institutions tend to prefer to fund projects that will bring them wide-scale recognition, rather than producing the mundane, if vitally important, small-scale data that might be more important. By that same token, career advancement for professional archaeologists tends to accumulate more to people who work on major finds rather than small ones. While understandable, this is not necessarily the best way to learn about the past. Fortunately, most developed countries have policies related to what is called rescue archaeology, where property owners have to bring in archaeological teams when something of historical significance is uncovered, and everybody gets compensated by the state. For example, if someone in France were building a housing complex and uncovered evidence of a medieval village, work on the project would stop. A local team of archaeologists would come in and do an excavation of the property. They're usually required to work quickly and then work with the landowners to allow the property owner to complete their project while stabilizing the artifacts in a way that they can be looked at again later without compromising the value of the land. The documentary information that's gleaned from the, the quick dig can then be taken back to the local college or museum for analysis and eventual publication. While crisis archaeology is hardly the ideal way to learn about the past, these regulations and the accompanying funding has allowed the accumulation of a large amount of small-scale archaeological discoveries around the developed world since the end of World War II. These discoveries reached something of a critical mass by the 1990s. 
podcast footnote. I said, quote, most developed countries, end quote, just now. As you are all smart and nice-smelling people, I will leave it to your imagination to fill in which modern developed countries might not be devoting any funding to the preservation of sites of archaeological significance. On an entirely unrelated note, you should all look up the Historic Preservation Act of 1966 if you ever happen to feel that you are suffering from low blood pressure. You might also want to seek out a definition of the term, quote, unfunded mandate, unquote. Just some light reading, you know. Again, totally coincidental and unrelated to the other thing, just to be clear. End podcast footnote. There are a number of disciplines related to archaeology that have also developed in the decades since World War II that are important to our story. Underwater archaeology is a very exciting one that's becoming increasingly important, though hopefully I don't need to explain the name. As we've learned more about the way sea levels have changed, archaeologists have realized that some of the most important settlements in history have been covered over by the sea. In addition, the history of maritime commerce is extremely important to economic history, and of course, most of the remaining physical evidence of maritime commerce is under the water in the form of shipwrecks. An intellectual discipline whose name I probably do need to explain is paleogeography. This area of inquiry originally aimed at understanding ecosystems from before human history, and led to the development of various tools and subdisciplines for examining various parts of the prehistoric environment. Notably, paleobotanists did things like examine fossilized pollen in soil samples or in ice cores to understand what kinds of plants were around at the time and in what proportion and what that might mean about the ecosystem. This was initially used to examine time periods before the evolution of humans, but it was realized that these techniques could provide valuable information about artifacts discovered in much more modern times. This kind of environmental archaeology has contributed to many exciting discussions in modern history around things like the impact of climate change on human history, but it has a range of implications beyond these sort of headline-catching narratives. For example, examinations of ice cores from alpine glaciers show the presence of certain types of uh, airborne particles, I, I believe most notably carbon, in the ice. This carbon was once airborne, and it was trapped in the ice in successive layers. It was eventually determined that the specific uh, mix of chemicals in question was produced as the result of the process used for iron production in pre-modern societies. Nowadays, you don't burn things. You use these giant magnets to pull the atoms apart, which is pretty cool. Uh, but, you know, back in the day, you had to burn things, and, and that would release certain kinds of substances. And, you know, enough people were producing iron around the world that it was measurable in these glaciers. Historians, working with the paleogeographers, have been able to use this data to understand the relative amounts of iron production happening in Europe over the centuries. For example, there was a lot during the height of the Roman Empire, but it declined after the 2nd century. By the time of the empire's collapse, not very much iron was being produced in Europe at all. And then after that, iron production rebounded. Paleogeography can also tell us where artifacts came from originally. For example, examining the silk in a garment might tell us where the garment came from, which would tell us a bit about possible trade links. Related techniques examine the proportion of certain radioactive isotopes in precious metals, which can then allow archaeologists to identify what region the metal used in an artifact was mined in. All of these new tools allowed a deeper richness in the ongoing examinations of archaeological sites. These archaeological efforts in turn produced huge amounts of data, most of which were not particularly mind-blowing in themselves. These data were compiled into reports, which were published, and then stuck on a shelf. Specialists in a given field might read about particularly important discoveries, but for most of the post-war era, this information just kind of accumulated in archives in increasing quantity and often unexamined. Then, in the last decade of the 20th century, someone realized that the great-grandchildren of the point transistor might be able to help. 
Indeed, the great contribution of the 1990s was not really in terms of any new technique or massive discoveries, though there were some. Indeed, it was personal computers that have revolutionized the study of history uh, because they gave historians a new ability to access these huge troves of data, structure that data into a comprehensible form, and then analyze the data for patterns. This has happened as a result of two or three related technologies, uh, namely database keyword searches, spreadsheet programs, and geographic information systems. Database keyword searches are so common now as to be an incredibly mundane part of daily life, and yet they are incredibly essential. We would simply be unable to make use of the vast quantity of information available to us online without search functions. For most of us, the information we're looking for is pretty mundane, like trying to find a good recipe for Scrapple. But for historians, this technology has multiplied their ability to gather information. As historical documents are progressively digitized and transcribed online, historians suddenly have the ability to search for specific words that are of interest in massive libraries. Often these documents will only contain one or two interesting sentences, and in the past it would not have been worth a historian's time to just trawl through every single book or document in a library trying to find those one or two sentences. This kind of work would have required millions of dollars in terms of travel and just lifetimes worth of time. Now, with online keyword searches, the information is available to professionals with much more reasonable amounts of effort. This allows a historian not only to find all the extant sources that mention, so, say, Arab dinars, uh, so all the historical documents, but then also find all the scholarly articles that discuss archaeological finds that contain Arab dinar coins. This data can be put into spreadsheet programs for statistical analysis or, more excitingly, mapped. Geographic Information Systems, or GIS for short, are basically just database tools that turn spreadsheets into maps. Any piece of data can be mapped if it has a location, and most information does in some way, shape, or form. This may not sound like much, but the potential importance of maps really can't be overemphasized. Uh, as an example, one of the pioneering uses of GIS in historical research was done in the USA uh, at the Gettysburg Battlefield. In this project, a team of archaeologists placed the location of every single bullet and every other item they found onto a map. By examining the dispersal of bullets and the location of items that were probably dropped, maybe as a result of a person being hit, the team was able to much more accurately locate the movements of the front line at the Peach Orchard and the Devil's Den. This led to some new conclusions about the way the battle proceeded in that area of the battlefield. For those working in medieval economics, similar tools could help tie together thousands of small finds to show the development of medieval trade routes. Again, this kind of technology doesn't produce anything new per se, but it takes the data that's already in existence and makes it usable. Archaeologists have been finding bullets and Arab dinar coins since the discipline began, but by tying these small little points of data together into a full data set and representing it onto a map, suddenly patterns emerge and become manifest in obvious ways. The net result of all this data processing capacity was that historians suddenly found themselves sitting on top of huge amounts of data that they hadn't exploited in the past. Of course, very little of this was actually new, but by the late 1990s, years of diligent work by archaeologists and related disciplines had created vast digital storehouses of information which the historians could suddenly access, analyze, and use to re-examine their previous conclusions. The result has been a quiet revolution in many areas of historical study, as historians have been forced to lay aside the internecine squabbles between the different post-structuralist schools in order to start responding to the first major influx of new evidence since the turn of the 20th century. Podcast footnote. If I sound a little bit excited about all this GIS stuff, well, that's because I have basically built my career on it. 
While GIS has clear applications in history, it actually has applications in dozens of areas of inquiry. Urban planning was actually one of the first areas to enthusiastically adopt GIS analysis techniques, and in fact, the team at Harvard that developed the first modern GIS system was part of their urban design school. Back in those days, uh, this was like the early 80s, late 70s, they were still working with mainframes and punch cards, and like I said before, the printers were just typewriters. So the first maps they produced used different keyboard symbols to represent topographic maps, you know, like using slashes to integrate different lines of uh, elevation. My mentor at my first planning job uh, used to regale us with stories of how, back in the day, they used ArcGIS 2.0, which was so old that they had to use command prompts to run data analysis. Ah, old times, you kids these days, you're spoiled. The book that forms one of my main sources for the next episode, Origins of the Medieval Economy by Michael McCormick, contains a note that the author made all the maps himself on ArcGIS 3.0. I'm not sure what the interface was on that. I personally learned how to use GIS on Arc 8.6, and at the office right now we're running ArcGIS 10.2, which is a fairly easy-to-use environment with a very intuitive interface that's basically industry standard in the United States. With this software we can do things like estimate the population within a certain distance of all the bus stops in an area. This can tell us how much of the population is within a reasonable walking time of the bus, which can help us analyze the current service that we're providing and see if we're doing a good job. Of course, my main job, the, the main thing that I get paid to do, is using a program called TransCAD 7, which I use to run the state's travel demand model. This magical device uses basic demographic information to predict how people are likely to travel across the road network and the transit network, uh, which can help us determine what the impact of big road projects might be on the system and make predictions about things like air quality. This too is based on GIS, but it couldn't be a more different application than studying the location of amphora jars around the Mediterranean. I indeed, dozens if not hundreds of companies and uh, areas of inquiry, as I've said, have started using GIS systems for their own particular ends. Private companies use GIS systems to keep track of whether their deliveries are on time. Police departments are using them to analyze crime patterns. Volcanologists use it to keep tabs on whether a volcano is about to explode. One of my college roommates got his PhD in using GIS, and I believe his dissertation was about shooting lasers at trees using GIS systems. I, I wasn't really clear on that, but that sounds awesome. What I'm basically trying to say is that GIS is a really interesting field with a lot of value, and if you have the chance to get into it, I would really recommend it. End podcast footnote. There is one last area where new technology outside of the historical discipline has contributed new evidence to historical discussions. The use of genetics in archaeology and historical research has been developing rapidly, and is probably the highest profile tool of all the ones uh, that I've discussed today. While once researchers needed to destroy huge piles of artifacts to find intact genetic material, geneticists can now often extract usable samples from very, very tiny traces of artifact, something that has made wide-scale use of genetic testing basically practical in research. This has led to some stunning revelations, but also some problematic conclusions. An example many of you might be familiar with is the case of the so-called Shield Maiden controversy. 
In short, archaeologists had assumed for years that graves from the Nordic region in which bodies were buried with weapons must be warrior men, because that conformed with their expectations. This evidence was used to argue for a certain patriarchal structure in Scandinavian societies. In the past decade, researchers doing genetic testing of the remains discovered that a relatively large proportion of the bodies buried with weapons were genetically female. That is, they had two X chromosomes rather than one X and one Y chromosome. The media went nuts, reporting that this confirmed the presence of shield maidens. Huge fights broke out online based on discussions of short, poorly written articles that did not carefully describe the actual evidence. Now, a short aside on methodological techniques. It's long been archaeological dogma that you shouldn't assume anything until you have lots of data to support an assertion. The classic explanation is the future archaeologist mind experiment. Imagine, if you will, that a future archaeologist dug up a modern shopping mall. They might find a lot of objects that were made in China. Does that mean that the United States was politically dominated by China in some sort of military occupation? Well, you and I know that's wrong, but it could be a reasonable hypothesis from this evidence. The evidence could also suggest that the U.S. had been culturally dominated by China, who was able to flood the U.S. market with manufactured items because of the superiority of their products to ours. In fact, this is also wrong for the most part, but one might come to this conclusion from the evidence. The correct hypothesis would be that the U.S. is in a position to use its economic and cultural power to get China to produce things for us, but that would not be clear from the evidence. The future archaeologist could just as easily suggest that, immediately before the mall got buried, there was some sort of accident that randomly scattered the site with Chinese products. The only way to start eliminating the different hypotheses would be for the future archaeologist to dig up a bunch more malls and gather a lot of evidence, and then try to contextualize that evidence, possibly using written sources. The situation with the so-called shield maidens is a great example of archaeologists forgetting this lesson. Just because the weapons were found in the grave doesn't mean that we can make assumptions about the relationship between the dead individual and the grave goods. While we can probably assume that the swords were not tossed in the grave at the last second as some sort of weird prank, we can't necessarily assume that the reasons the weapons were put in the grave conform to our society's expectations of them, or even necessarily the expectations that we would derive from written sources. This story illustrates the potential value and the potential pitfalls of genetic evidence in the context of the wider archaeological methodological toolkit. Despite the extremely annoying and persistent controversy, it's clear that genetic testing made an extremely valuable contribution here. Archaeologists and historians were forced to confront the fact that previous generations of their colleagues had made a rookie mistake. Absent a good way to discern male skeletons from female ones, they had made assumptions based on their own cultural norms that were not, in the end, methodologically sound. Where the pitfalls of genetic testing come in here is with the second part of the story, because the journalists writing about the story, and to some extent the researchers themselves, actually made the same assumptions in reverse. The seemingly logical assumption was made that people buried with swords must have used them while they were alive. Therefore, the Vikings had warrior women. And this must be true, because scientists said so using genetics, and genetics are never wrong. Now, it would be awesome if the Vikings had warrior women. But just because I bury my Uncle Bob in a three-piece suit covered in long-stem roses doesn't mean that Uncle Bob spent much time in a suit, nor that he walked around all day holding bouquets. Grave goods are ceremonial. They indicate respect for the deceased, but usually in a ritualized way. As numerous archaeologists have repeatedly pointed out since the original story broke, we can't assume that the women buried with the swords actually used them any more than we can assume that the presence of weapons can act as a proxy for gender. It's a definite possibility, and we should be open to that, but we simply can't make elaborate assumptions with the evidence at hand just yet. The genetic testing part of the story is actually pretty rock-solid as far as I can tell, but it's just one point of data, essentially. 
Unfortunately, the public's fascination with genetics tends to allow that part of the story to dominate and gloss over other methodological features of, uh, of a study in a fairly disturbing way. Unfortunately, this issue is a persistent one that has dragged at the value of genetic testing in history. Every few years, there'll be some sort of exaggerated claim based on research that involved genetic testing that then takes 19 leaps that are methodologically dubious. These claims then inevitably have to be walked back, usually after the original researcher ends up embroiled in controversy over claims that they never even made based on a misunderstanding of what the evidence contained. Nonetheless, genetic testing remains a valuable tool in the archaeological and historical toolkit. Genetics can help us identify the foods in the diet of a settlement, they can help us learn about the illnesses that confronted people in the past, and they can help us understand the timing and magnitude of population movements. All of these are extremely valuable contributions. But we have to keep in mind that genetics is a tool like any other, and one that's prone to a lot of issues around contamination and statistical inference. The tendency of modern laypeople to view it as some sort of magical elixir means that claims based on genetic tests have, unfortunately, to be subject to a little bit of extra skepticism. Unless you yourself are a genetic researcher, I urge you not to take articles on the subject at face value, and do a little digging into the methodological underpinnings of un any assertion you might see before taking it as gospel fact. Particularly, and not to name names or anything, but if there's a study where uh, one of the sponsors stands to turn a profit based on the public embracing of genetic testing, you should probably be suspicious. Now, I have kind of piled on the genetic testing aspect of modern research, and so I would like to take this opportunity to discuss some of the challenges that we face in some of these other areas of, of new research. Because it's not just genetic testing that has sort of methodological problems. Most broadly, many of these methods or tools require the statistical analysis of information using computers. Now, while I'm sure all of my listeners are brilliant at whatever they turn their minds to, complex statistical analysis are not the easiest thing to understand. I do it for a living. It's hard. There is real danger that the computer analysis will turn into a kind of black box, where we feed stuff in, magic happens, and stuff comes out. If researchers don't have the ability to assess the reliability of their results in some way, there's a real danger that, as has been the case with genetic testing, the scienciness of the results will get people to trust them implicitly. This could lead us down some serious dead ends, unless at least one of the people on the research team has the requisite skills to maintain a level of skeptical restraint. This leads us to a second issue, that of multidisciplinary research. We're moving into an era when it's very unlikely that any one researcher will have the skills required to fully research all the relevant topics. While the historians of the future are likely to have at least basic statistical analysis and GIS skills, they're not going to be equipped to run mass spectrometers or analyze genetic samples, or place pollen samples under electron microscopes, or, heck, conduct a proper archaeological dig. As the discipline of history moves forward, professional historians are going to need to work in multidisciplinary teams, and it isn't clear that academia is well set up to allow this. To be sure, academia is probably the best set up institution to allow this, compared to, like, the government or private industry, but there's a tendency to silo researchers into areas of specialization and reward individuals for good work rather than rewarding teams. Of course, for those of us who are not on the inside, the situation is even more dire. As many of you are aware, one of the big reasons for the delay in the next episode has been difficulties securing sources that I have felt minimally necessary in order to deliver a quality product. Dr. McCormick's book on the subject of economic history, while completely invaluable for my research, costs $145 on Amazon last time I checked. That was $145 for the Kindle edition. 
In the past, a way around this might have been utilizing my local public library, but even the old standby of interlibrary loan was not able to help me in this situation. The book is available on Abesco, one of the principal online databases of academic literature, but the public libraries of my state have not been able to secure access to Abesco, uh, and I'm not going to be spending the rest of my life in college libraries every weekend reading this book 20 pages at a time. It's 800 pages long. The issue, clearly, is that members of the public are cut off from a huge proportion of available academic material. This is an old problem, but it seems to become more and more critical every year. Even for those within academia, there remains issues surrounding the digitization of surviving materials. As it turns out, digitizing and archiving materials is not as sexy or fun as it sounds. Despite initial waves of enthusiasm, it turns out that the skills of the archivist are largely expensive, tedious, and thankless, as much as they are extremely vitally important to the forward progress of history as a discipline. While thousands of museums remain around the world holding potentially vital evidence for our ongoing quest to understand our own past, institutions and individuals do not win acclaim or praise for the tasks needed to archive these records and artifacts. In fact, one might be tempted to suggest that digitization actually could discourage people from visiting a museum. Since everything's online every anyway, why should people come on down? As a result, institutions have been as reticent to fully fund archival programs as career-minded individuals have been to devote their lives to an endless mess of scanning and data entry that will, most likely, only end up benefiting other researchers thousands of miles away, and possibly decades in the future. So while the work of digitizing our collective past continues, it is happening much slower than most people assume, than most researchers would hope, and than the people involved would prefer. All of which brings us to the last section of today's episode. What does all this mean for you, dear listeners? Well, for the vast majority of you, I hope you found this at least interesting. At the very least, it helped avoid a 20-minute podcast footnote next time out, and I will be able to refer back to this rather than delving into a huge methodology discussion over the course of the rest of the series. Ideally. For some of you out there, though, this is hopefully a bit more relevant. I know a few of you are aspiring professionals in a history-related field. Maybe you're in a field that has no clear links to history. In any case, given what I have said about interdisciplinary efforts, I urge you all to keep your eyes open for opportunities. If you're a student, I encourage you to learn the technical skills you're going to need in terms of statistical analysis and GIS research. If you're in a history-adjacent field, keep your eyes open for opportunities to engage in interdisciplinary research. Make sure your work is not just published through the usual channels, but if it has historical ramifications, try and bring it to the attention of professional historians. You really just never know what kinds of data or methodologies might be important, and so the best plan is to reach as many people as possible from as many backgrounds as possible. If you're a working historian, the same goes for you. Publish outside of the normal history journals. Try and reach the general public. And please remember to give credit to those in other disciplines who helped you out. Historians are generally pretty good about this, but, you know, it bears repeating. All of this will help us break down the silos we all end up working in, which is something that will hopefully benefit everybody. Lastly, and I think most importantly from all the work I've done and a lot of the stuff I've been doing in my day job and everything, if you can, take some time from your day and go out and thank an archivist. Seriously, they have a thankless job, but they're doing God's work. There's no telling what importance their work will have. We are all in their debt, but they are unlikely to ever get the kudos they deserve for their efforts. All around us, they're at it. In every major company, small town museum, and government office, they plug away, keeping us from forgetting our past and helping us make use of that knowledge. So seriously, go give them a high five. They deserve it. I hope you all enjoyed that. Thanks everyone for listening. 
Uh, hopefully it was as interesting for you to hear me talk about it as it was for me to read about. Obviously, there is some serious overlap here between my day job and my hobby in this area, so uh, at the very least, thanks for indulging me. In any case, today we talked about the new sources of information that have begun changing the practice of history since the 1990s. The oldest of the changes has been the continued maturation of archaeology, which has gradually moved away from heroic quests for lost cities to more mature, small-scale excavations of poor rural villages and urban ports. Archaeologists began working with tools developed by paleogeography and paleobotanists to dig deeply into the makeup and provenance of artifacts in deeply insightful and useful ways. By the 1990s, these small excavations had created a critical mass of new information that, when taken individually, might not have seemed interesting, though when analyzed collectively had the potential to overturn decades of assumptions. Computers provided the tools necessary to affect this analysis. Keyword searches of online databases reduced the costs and career risks of this kind of investigation, while desktop spreadsheet programs allowed more rigorous analysis of information. GIS systems allowed the new data to be placed on maps, which allowed geographical relationships to emerge and give new insights into the way historical societies functioned. Genetic studies are a key tool in this process as well, but the dramatic attention attracted by the claims attached to genetic studies has generated controversies that have often distracted from the real contributions of this new area of inquiry. Meanwhile, the unsung heroes of this brave new world are those who are bringing this data into the digital world. The archivists, archaeologists, and data entry specialists who spend their careers on small projects may never see the results of their work, but we are all deeply in their debt. Next episode, we will finally, hopefully, begin to sample the heady brew created as a result of their efforts. Assumptions about the medieval economy are widespread in popular culture, and in numerous history-adjacent disciplines. From public policy works to the writers of popular comedy movies, everyone thinks they know how the medieval economy worked. But what if I told you that the Middle Ages was a period of sustained economic growth? What if I told you that the medieval countryside was full of merchants and travelers? And what if I told you that the Roman economy was actually... Kind of terrible. If you told me that, I would ask you to present your justification for those extraordinary assertions. Well, uh, good. Good, you've, you've been paying attention. Good job, everybody. Backpacks all around. No, no, seriously, you need to justify that stuff. I mean, yeah, you're totally right, but I'm kind of wrapping up for today. <clears throat> That's not methodologically sound. Yeah, but look, it was all just a rhetorical flourish to tease next time. Uh, it's okay, Lord God, what are we doing here? You're all just going to have to come back next episode uh, as we explore the current theories about the medieval economy. You're not very good at this, are you? Well, that was hurtful. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for your patience. A huge thanks to the listeners who have helped me get my hands on resources this month. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. Once again, to Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Shout out to Claude Myron Guzer of the Cannonball Podcast for helping me out with that little skit. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 